Writing is a lonely job. It's the writer, the idea, and a blank sheet of paper. So what happens when a writer is married to another writer? When and Meredith Blevins are a husband and wife who both write for a living, Wynn's latest novel is So Wild a Dream. It's the story of Sam Morgan, a young man who enters the world of trapper explorers opening up the country between the Missouri frontier and the Pacific Ocean in the 1820s. Meredith's first novel is The Hummingbird Wizard, the present-day story of Annie Zabo, who married into a gypsy family and finds herself trying to solve a murder in the gypsy community. Meredith and Wynn, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hi, Rick. Thanks. How is it to be married to a writer? You're both married to a writer. <laughs> I was going to say, which one are you asking? <laughs> <laughs> no regular paychecks. <laughs> um, it's, it's great. We love to brainstorm. That's... Um, it's a wonderful support. I don't know how a writer doesn't be married to a writer unless that other person is extremely patient. Um, we don't do deadlines at the ta- same time, so one of us cleans the house while the other one just lets the other one write, and sometimes we let the dust all go. Yeah, mostly we don't clean the house. <laughs> <laughs> we go to the coffee shop and we, and we talk out scenes and we imagine crazy things. We imagine 20 times as many books as we'll ever have time to write. <laughs> Boy, that sounds fun. Uh, when you were published first, uh, I guess with Tor, was it? I've had a bunch of publishers. Okay. <laughs> you started writing first, and then Meredith started writing after. Meredith, why did you start writing when Wynn was writing? Was it inspiration? I, I wrote nonfiction and uh, financial columns, which actually were quite fictional. And so I thought <laughs> we know as long that's as, common. Yeah, as long as I was making stuff up, I might as well have fun with it. <laughs> so um, Wynn encouraged me. My kids encouraged me. Everybody encouraged me. I think they were trying to make me, you know, let me make some money off my lying. And um, so uh, fiction came actually quite naturally. It was a lot of fun. I discovered her actually at a writer's conference. I wasn't encouraging at the beginning because I wasn't there. But You'd she think bought a I manuscript. was a continent, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I could use some weight, lose some weight. But <laughs> yeah, that's it. You were a continent and I discovered you. <laughs> Did, were you able to help her get in the front door? Oh, no. Well, it, it didn't work out that way. I told her I, w- I, I would buy her manuscript uh, for my publisher. I'm an editor there. Oh. And I told her I wanted to. And then she suffered the marriage penalty, which is to say, when I got the girl, then I couldn't buy the manuscript. You see, they call that nepotism. So, no, I unhelped her get in the, in the front door, unfortunately. Uh, who writes where? You go. Uh, we built a, round, a two-story round tower in our house. Um, which is where? Uh, it's near Monument Valley which is the place that you see in the GMC truck commercials with the spires of red rock sticking up. It's where where Thelma and Louise drove off the cliff, and some days we understand that. Yeah. (laughs) So we built a (laughs) two-story round tower uh, specifically for work, like the center of energy in the house, and we sit uh, back-to-back and interrupt each other. Wow, in the same room? Same room. At the same time, even. And it's only an 11 foot in diameter, whichever way that goes, um, round room. So, yes, we're often really back to back. Our computers are networked, which is actually quite helpful because if one of us Mm -hmm. is about to lose our work, we say, pick it up quick. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about a typical day of writing. What time do you start? How, How does your writing, how do you work it as a, as a work day? Well, I've decided I'm, 
I'm lazy. That is, I always wanted to get up at dawn and and make coffee and write and write and write until maybe uh, 11 or 12 o'clock and, and then have breakfast and do something else in the afternoon. Uh, now I understand from more and more writers that it's actually possible to go back to work in the afternoon. <laughs> My plans may have to change. But I tend to write all, I like to write all morning and in the afternoon I have uh, editing to do, I have uh, book uh, promoting to do, uh, all sorts of things. And I like to write five pages a day. Meredith is completely different. <laughs> I, I go on... Um I go on binges where I just don't write, and then I'll write 25 or 30 pages a day, just sort of like frame up the house, and um, and then decorate. So um, at, during those times, I'm up at 5 in the morning, and I'm working until 9 at night. So, um, you know, it just depends on what we need to work on and how much company we've had. <laughs> For living in the middle of nowhere, we have a lot of people that pass by. Um so our work habits are pretty different, but we're always uh, working, you know, we're always working between 10 and 4, 10 and 3, and before or after that is just uh, depending on what needs to get done. Do you guys proof and edit one another? Oh, yeah. Um, I guess people wouldn't be surprised that I'm, I'm Meredith's first editor, but she's my first editor. Um uh, uh, nothing that I write goes uh, anywhere uh, without her seeing it. And usually we talk it over, and uh, if the same sentences that make me uncomfortable make her uncomfortable, um, uh, then they change. But she has a technique. She runs so late on her deadlines that there's only eight <laughs> hours left before it has to be mailed away, and I don't have time to read hers. This this may have been done for a plan, but no, he he, he I whip him into reading my thing. Get it done, because I'm afraid he'll like, you know, stretch it out for a week, and I want him to have the whole juice. But um, I, on the second book that I just finished, um, it was interesting because I'd written chapter one felt it was not juicy enough and I put it in chapter three moved chapter three to chapter one horsed around with that and then when he read the manuscript he said you know did you ever think about maybe the book should actually start at chapter one which is really where I had originally written you it you mean chapter three at chapter three should yes. start at start at chapter one um so you know that's the kind of feedback that's really pretty invaluable it's the big things that that we do not not commas, not commas and semicolons and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's just the the themes, the characters, the development. Emotional, yeah. where the emotional juice is. This is going on too long. This is not going on long enough. I want I want a little more juice in here. It's got so much potential. That sort of stuff. The shape of the story. Yeah. When where, who are you editing for? And Tor Forge. I, oh I, really? I edit for the same house that I write for. Wow, well, that's great. Do you guys have a sense of Competition? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. I. Uh, I mean, I. F I feel like I discovered Meredith, so that's all cool, and she feels like she's recreating me, right? <laughs> <laughs> I feel that he's one of those beautiful writers around, and I can't understand why he hasn't been marketed better. As now, well, this is as an ex-business columnist, I I keep thinking, why didn't someone market him better? So no, there's no competition. It's just the opposite. Besides, our strengths are very different uh, as novelists. Very different. Yes, I, I sense that when I read it. They're they're very different novels. Mm -hmm. 
Are you working on the marketing of your own novel for Tor Forge? Oh boy, am I. Um, it's it's kind of worn me out. I finished this uh, So Wild a Dream uh, uh, a year ago, and then I finished oh, the yeah. next book in the series in April, and I've done nothing but but market this book since uh, since April. It's hard work. People who do marketing must get paid. <laughs> I should get paid. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about your book, Wynn. It's why did you decide to write about fur trapping in the 1820s? Uh, there's a real good, simple, easy answer. I don't know. Uh, that is the answer. These stories have appealed to me on just a visceral level uh, since I was a kid. And I had a great teacher in college, John Nyhart, who wrote a book called Black Elk Speaks, uh, which a lot of people know, and he told me these stories. and They have a grip on my heart. The, a more serious sort of answer is, well, I've written these books for 30 years, uh, but a more serious answer for this one, I had the idea that I wanted to tell um, the history of the entire Rocky Mountain fur trade in one series of books, but I wanted to do it in fiction rather than history because uh, fiction is the realm of the heart, History is the realm of information or the intellect. And I wanted to be able to tell how all that felt um, in, in addition to what it was. And I wanted to look at what is really an American life near the beginning of our country when we were figuring out what it is to be Americans rather than colonialists, British, French, etc. Did you research that before you... Uh, built the story? Did you build the story before you did the research, or did you research and then fit the story into what you found out? Uh, 31 years ago, I wrote a book about the fur trade. I did a tremendous amount of, of uh, research, and really, I've just kept doing it uh, uh, ever since. My research now is just looking up things to remind myself. Uh, it's not starting fresh. I had a really good picture uh, of the whole thing before I began to work on the story. You created some interesting uh, invented characters and integrated them perfectly with the real characters. I read the whole novel, and it wasn't until I got to the end that I didn't that I realized that it was largely true. You built this around true characters. How did you create the emotions of your researched characters and integrate them with the emotions of your invented characters? Wow, that's real. That's tricky. Um, uh, when I'm writing, uh, it's real blue sky. It's um, it's like looking at a movie screen in my mind, and I just see, hear, smell, feel what happens, um, and it's just like it was real. Um, I don't sit there and like make choices much about how this character might feel about this or that. Uh, I'm writing it. At, at blinding speeds and a great well of emotion comes up for me and I just flow it straight out um, onto the paper. It feels real to me. It doesn't feel like I'm inventing it. The great thing about historical fiction, even when you're dealing with historical characters, is then that you can get into their emotional life and just not what you know about the facts. Now, both of you, I noticed with your characters, you're you like your characters. Even the bad guy characters are likable and enjoyable and really fascinating, and you feel a lot of sympathy for them. Could you talk about, both of you talk about how you develop your characters and how you feel about them, and do you interact when you're writing with one another? 
Um, I interview my characters. I know, obviously, who my main characters are. Um, uh, in The Hummingbird Wizard, it's Annie Zavos, my main character, who's sort of my alter ego and has my fantasy life. Um, and her mother-in-law, who is not my fantasy mother-in-law, the gypsy fortune teller. But everyone else um, just sort of pops in. And I'm not sure where they come from, but but when they're there, then I have to, I see them visually first, then I do actually just interview them as if I were uh, doing an article, maybe a little more specific though. What color do you like? What was the house you grew up in like? What did it smell like? Things I will never use in the story, but um, things that tell me who that person is and what, what's moving them and motivating them. When you know a character, it's pretty hard not to feel sympathetic for them, even if they turn out to be the bad guy, you know? Um, my characters generally just get caught up in things and aren't really basically bad people. They just, things spin out of control, often because they're not going with the rhythm of life or what have you. So maybe that's why they're likable. I like them all, so. Uh, when? As far as sympathetic villains are concerned, um, I mean, I, I, I'm a dramatist. I, I tell s stories. Um, I don't think some people are right and some people are wrong. And when I'm writing Sam Morgan in this book, right, then I'm mad at his enemies. But but that doesn't mean I don't know fully that if I were writing their story, uh, I'd be mad, mad at Sam Morgan. So, I mean, they're people with urges, large desires, ambitions, frustrations, uh, and so on. They just happen to be in the way of my, my character, that's all. Could you talk about, both of you also have some finely researched ethnic portraits. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about researching ethnic uh, characters and how you do that? Well, actually for the gypsies, um, I've been researching them for probably 15 years. I'm a member of the Gypsy Lore Society. There are 357 of us in the United States. <laughs> a group started by William Butler Yeats. You read people's PhD studies, theses on um, these groups of people. Um, you do the mental part first, and then you search them out. And some of the scams in my book were scams that were run on me uh, on purpose. I wanted to get into the middle of it and see see what it would feel like to be on the other end. So um, I'm lucky that it's contemporary, and I can, I can get myself uh, scammed out. <laughs> I, I'm really interested in, in other cultures uh, and, and want to write them. When I was a, a kid, 21, um, my aunts revealed to me that our family was Cherokee, which I had grown up not knowing and which my family systematically and purposely kept hidden from everybody until they were an adult. And then we were all ordered not to talk about it anymore. So I felt I'd missed something. And I think I wanted to know partly what it's like to be an Indian. So um, I've worked on Indian people for 40 years. Um, I've lived out with Indian uh, people. I have uh, adopted much of their religion. I do the uh, I do the sweat lodge, I do the vision quest, I've done the Sundance. Um, and, and in some ways, I, j I, j I feel like this is, is my, my culture too. And I want to be able to show uh, who they are as Americans just as fully as I show who the people who come into their country are. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how you researched the language of the time for your novel, Wynn. Oh, it's... The language of the time is really tricky, um, 
1820s, some Americans are literate and speak somewhat like what you read in the Declaration of Independence, and most are illiterate and speak approximately like Huck Finn. Um, plus, you have to throw in, now we're dealing with fur trappers, uh, out of any dozen of them, three of them are going to be uh, Kentucky or Virginia or Pennsylvania backwoodsmen. Uh, three of them are going to be uh, Irish or Brits. Uh, three of them are going to be French Canadians, which actually means Indian people who are French-speaking. Uh, and three of them are going to be Delaware Indians, and we'll go to 15, and three of them are going to be Spaniards out of Taos. So you have all these people uh, who don't speak each other's language but are together in the same unit, kind of like a military unit, and have to cooperate. And so what emerges is kind of their own language, uh, uh, which is a mess, a polyglot, a uh, mixture of French, Spanish, uh, Indian words. And luckily we have it. Uh, there were two Brits mainly who went out and lived among them in the 1830s and 40s, and wrote, we have a total of uh, four books from those two guys, and we have uh, have their language recorded in there. So that's how you research it. Meredith, mm -hmm. you also have some interesting language in your book, mm -hmm. in the customs of the gypsies. Could you tell us about uh, a bit about, just a bit about the novel, which I would describe as my big fat gypsy funeral? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it reads like. It has it's three. It's really good. It has. <laughs> Okay, now I lost the question because I was laughing. <laughs> the, the customs of uh, the gypsies in the language. Well, actually, that was that's, again, uh, part research uh, as far as reading. Uh, uh, there's a press called Waveland Press that, that, does, that prints up people's Ph.D. studies, and I read several of those. One was a sociologist, a woman who kind of inveigled her way in and lived with them for a couple of years and published a dictionary with their words, their curses, their... their this, there, that. There's a a man who um, who is a gypsy man who publishes uh, their healing, their herbs, what have you. So I use that. And then the other things I just got from, um, as I said, searching them out, being around them, and listening to their the language and the way they speak, uh, the rhythm of their language. You know, whenever you hear the rhythm of a language, sometimes you can almost fill in the blanks. You know. Um, did you ask me about the book, My Big Fat Gypsy Funeral? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, one thing I found was that um, uh, a traditional gypsy funeral involves burning the vardo, which is your wagon. It's your way of moving through the world. And But in this case, the person who dies is a San Francisco attorney. So his wagon happens to be an $80,000 Mercedes Benz. So we have a big traditional gypsy funeral uh, except that it's at the Ocean Drake's Bay, if you know uh, the North Bay part of, uh, of this area. Um, and it is torched along and filled with him, his CDs, his jockey briefs, uh, any, anything he might have. And then the gypsies convene, as they always will. But it happens to be in my main character's backyard, and they happen to be eating SpaghettiOs and Ding Dongs. <laughs> so we've kind of combined their... Now there are they are Americans though too. There are two million gypsies who are Americans. So um, you know it's it's gypsy Americans, not gypsies from Hungary. You also have an interesting set of relations: three generations of women, mm -hmm. Annie, her daughter, and Mina, her mm -hmm. mother. Mm -hmm. When you also have an interesting set of relationships between men. Mm -hmm. Could you guys talk about how you work out? your same-sex relationships? Um, let's see. I think of my childhood rivalry with, with my brother and get even. 
<laughs> not, not, not exactly true. But when I think oh, yes, about it, it is. <laughs> I've written, I think, 11 novels. And somebody pointed out to me after I'd written about 10 that all of them were about uh, a father-son uh, relationships. So I'm sure that's not an accident. I'm sure I'm working something out. And this one is partly about uh, uh, a brother relationship. And I'm sure that's not an accident. It's not that anything that happens is the same. It's that the feelings uh, are the same. Sam acts rather more extravagantly on his feelings uh, than I did, for sure. He uh, lives in Pennsylvania, and he uh, takes off and goes all the way to the Rocky Mountains, walking most of the way because there's no other form of transportation. Well, that's a pretty extravagant form of running away. But still, that's where the feelings come from. Uh, um, my feelings come from a lot of strong a women, a family with a lot of strong women, and who were lucky enough to be uh, surrounded by men who kind of thought, you know what, we're running the sh- they're running the show. We better just stand back and let them go, and um, so. Actually, my sister read this manuscript before it was a book, and my mom, who's an Irish-American, she said, how come Madame Mina sounds just like mom? I think these <laughs> relationships are all, and then the daughter who, the main character's daughter is very much like mine. She, you know, she behaves, a lot of times people who were hippies, you know, end up with these, as I might have been, uh, end up with these kids who act so grown up, you know, and what have you. Um and in the end, they they all really love each other, and their their ethics, their values, their morals are all the same, although they're bumping heads all the way through. It's it's, um, and they also know when push comes to shove, as far as raising the kids and keeping the web of the family together, they're the ones who are going to do it. And there's no bad feelings about men, but they do understand that that men will take off, men will do this or that, and sometimes. The women are the ones doing the kids and what have you. Women carry Meredith's story. In her story, men are only sex objects, <laughs> which <laughs> makes me wonder about my <laughs> place in her he, life. He asked me. He likes it. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to be a sex object. <laughs> well, now you are. <laughs> Meredith, your novel has some elements of mystery novels, violence, and there's some deaths in there, violent deaths. How common is it for women to experience violence, and and did that feed into your creation of this scenario? Part of my, uh, I think women experience violence often in a way of um, it's it's either thrust upon them that they don't and they're they don't want it, but they have to deal with it. And when they have to deal with it, all all hell breaks loose and the stops are pulled out because generally they're. They've been pushed into a corner. I don't think women generally look for violence, but when it happens to them, they will respond. Um, uh, it's it's also a nice place to fantasize if there was anybody that ever annoyed you in your life. This is an easy way to get back at them. <laughs> you just kill them and you're off scot-free. <laughs> when in your novel, one thing I really liked about it was it took it, re- it captured your prose captures a lyrical feeling of took me back to when I was like nine years old watching Davy Crockett and I just love that recapturing but what you also did was you brought a more adult edge to what is happening there's a lot of violence there's some sex there's prostitution these people are scamming one another could you talk about how you grew up the wild west oh um 
the West has, West has been mythicized, of course, and, and we all know what that myth has become. Thank you, Mr. John Ford. Thank <laughs> you, Mr. Lamore. I, I mean, that's fine. The, the West, has, West has been mythicized just as, say, uh, the medieval uh, knights were. Uh, but the West is more interesting and complex uh, and various uh, than that. Uh, the West isn't even mainly uh, uh, cowboys and gamblers and gunmen. It's uh, even more uh, fur trappers, uh, guides, Mormons, uh, Indians, miners, railroad men, Chinese, um, uh, and every kind of women, especially, as we say, um, uh, ladies of the night. I wrote a dictionary, Western language, uh, earlier, and I was fascinated to find that uh, there, the big three subjects for new Western words are, are ladies of the night, uh, whiskey, and death. And they're all very colorful. So now we know what was on those guys' minds <laughs> uh, from that. And in, in a way, I mean, I want to be one of the writers who's re-mythicizing the West in a larger, more complicated, uh, more adult way uh, that is still a lot of fun to tell stories that are adventure stories, that are exciting, that are fun, that have adult concerns. One of my big adult concerns, as you'll see, is, is racism, uh, relations between the white guys who go into the West and the red guys who already live there. One thing you also both cover, and I found this very interesting, you both have a somewhat uh, magic, realistic viewpoint of the world. When with you, with the characters, it comes from their belief in the folk tales, in the hexes and charms, and the monsters and myths that they still think live out in there in the land. Meredith, with you, it's with the magic world of the gypsies. Again, hexes and charms and mm -hmm. potions and love spells. Do you guys interact o about that when you talk? And could you both talk about how you put that into your fiction? I don't, I don't know that we do interact about it specifically. Um, we live in the middle of it. I think because we live in an in an area that is so large and so empty, there's lots of room for the spirit to wander, and the spirit naturally will wander in that direction um, when given half a chance. Um, uh, and and as far as uh, the the nitty gritty of it, I was just simply brought up believing that these things are absolutely common. That that spirits, ghosts, they live with us. Um, so so it doesn't seem odd to me. Um, One of the early critics of Meredith's books wrote that uh, her book is uh, uh, Elmore Leonard mixed with magical realism, and I think that's. Absolutely right. This was a nice critic. Sometimes we think of critics as being. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I've been for a, at least a decade, maybe 20 years, consciously trying to make my books uh, magic, magic, magically realistic. Uh, that's a term that's applied to Latin American fiction, but for some reason not to Norte Americano uh, fiction. But um, 19th century Americans. Uh, had a magical view of life in many ways. They really believed in exes. They really believed in charms. They really believed in curses and spells. And then you turn over the other half of my characters. Indian people uh, have a completely different set of those things. 
um, but an equally uh, magical uh, view of the world. I'm also very interested in characters' uh, spiritual growth as well as their physical adventures and their emotional growth. So my character, Sam, uh, adopts Indian religion, and one of the big scenes in this book is where he discovers his spirit uh, animal, uh, the buffalo. I want to say real loud and clear that I'm not taking a superior rational uh, view of these things. Um, I believe in them myself. Both of you, it's both very fascinating books, and you're both done with your sequels. Can you tell us a little bit about what we have to look forward to? Um, my, I f- have just finished my second book, as Wynne said, just like hot on the deadline. <laughs> the Vanished Priestess, and this is the world of um, the gypsies. Once again, we have the same main characters, but it takes place in the circus. So I, I got to do a lot of research on the circus beginning with the late 1700s. It rarely comes into the book, but it gives me a flavor for it. And um, it's just a a wonderful, a wonderful ride. These characters pulled through for me in ways that I had no idea they were going to. So that's the next one. We're with the gypsies in the circus. I will speak for Meredith's publishing house here. She has a contract to write a series of mysteries uh, set among gypsies in, uh, in the North Bay. And the, the titles are uh, based on the names of the major arcana of the tarot cards. So the first one was the wizard, and then the next one is the priestess. Uh, and so on. You're contractually obliged, my dear. (laughs) You know how I like to break rules, though. (laughs) I am contractually obliged. I I have a contract to write six books about this one character, Sam Morgan, which I'm going to take him from 18 uh, to 36 through the entire Rocky Mountain fur trade so that anyone who read the books would really know a lot about the, the history of that time, which is the time between when Lewis and Clark came back and the time when the Oregon Trail opened and other Americans went into the West. I mean, that's a blank in in our minds for the most part. We don't realize that there were a few guys out there the whole time. So six books about that character. He's going to grow up. He's going to become a man. He's uh, Aside from his adventures, and these are adventure stories, he's going to have a family, have children, have the problems that adult men come to as opposed to 18-year-old adventurers. Especially with mixed blood children. Yeah, so, and the, in, in America, especially that America, having mixed blood children, when you've been out there for 20 years and other white Americans now come and they look at your you and say, squaw lover, and they look at your wife and say, yeah, uh, engine, look at your children and say, yuck, engines, um, and yet you live here. You find this is your place. It's not theirs. They're either visitors or intruders. And they're coming in and disapproving uh, of you. And uh, it makes for a great conflict. We've been speaking with Wynne and Meredith Blevins. Wynne's latest novel is So Wild a Dream. Meredith's novel is The Hummingbird Wizard. Thanks for joining us. All right. You can reach us on our websites, too, which are the same as our names, and write to any of our characters. <laughs> you can write to the characters? Absolutely. You can write to the dead guy in mine. You can write to Madame Mina. How often do you get to speak to a dead man or a gypsy? <laughs> Via email. Thanks for the wonders of computers. Thanks. That's right. <laughs> Thank you.